Well, let's take our Bibles together as we turn to the Word this morning. We're in uh, our journey through Genesis. Find ourselves in chapter 3 this morning, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. Fairly lengthy section. We'll read it together. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. And uh, if you have the church Bible, you're going to find that on page 3. So there's lots of those in the room tucked underneath the, the chair rack in front of you. So help yourself to one of those if you don't have a Bible. I guess it's on your phone, so you can also do that. All right. Well, let's give our attention to God's Word as it is being read. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days in your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. We thank him for it. I invite you to join me in a prayer as we ask for uh, special grace in this time to, to hear what God says. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need more than food, physical food. We need the food of your word. It is what sustains us. And because that's true, we need to hear now. And Lord, as the one tasked with this proclamation, I realize I'm only a small part of this. And so what needs to happen here is for your spirit to speak, 
over and above and beyond the words of a mere man and cause your word to take hold in our hearts and our minds and bring change. So please, Lord, accomplish that work now. Give us attentive minds and ready hearts to receive from you and so be nourished from your hand. And we all ask all of this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's, there's an expression, um, I'm sure you've heard it, every cloud has a silver lining. I was thinking about that, and I was curious where that came from, where that uh, expression came from. A form of it has been attributed to, to John Milton. The quote is, Was I deceived, or did a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining on the night? Now, we get what this means, those with a generally positive disposition want to find some good in bad situations, right? You know, the rain that cancels the picnic waters the earth so the crops can grow. And that's truly good, even if your cookout is a washout, right? We get that. Now, if anything is true about God, when it comes to how he deals with his people, God makes good to happen out of what seems terribly bad. And that's the situation here in the Garden of Eden, as we read in this text. After the man and the woman disobeyed God by, by taking that forbidden fruit, it was bad, a bad situation. And what stands out to us when we read this is a curse. But buried deep in that curse and as part of God's pronouncement of it, there's a, a kernel of good that grows into a glorious blessing for all who look to God in faith. It's a blessed curse, if you will. So as we take a look at this, uh, which is probably to many of us a very familiar story, I want to find, uh, I want us to find that blessing and I want us to experience that blessing. And, and to do so, as we unpack this, I have three headings, which is my custom here. And we'll organize some thoughts around those three headings, but I'll give them to you up front. And it's uh, uh, strangely alliterated this time. So here are my three words. Confrontation, curse, and covenant. Confrontation, curse, and covenant. Well, let's get to it. The first heading here, con uh, confrontation. I don't know that anybody is particularly comfortable with confrontation. Uh, this uh, last week, Monday through Wednesday, uh, I was attending a seminar that was in part teaching church leaders to recognize and lovingly call out those who would stir up conflict in the local church. It's a hard thing to do. It's even harder to be on the receiving end of a confrontation, isn't it? And parents know this, right? When a child disobeys in some way, they, they do everything that they can to avoid your gaze. In fact, in our home, last week, my grandson, Avery, he, uh, he threw a book at me. He wanted me to read to him. Now, I was busy in the room. The whole family was there, and I, he didn't have my attention at the moment, so he just chucked it at me. And, uh, and I, think, I think it was Kathy. Uh, she, she wanted to confront him. She wanted to try to get him to own what he had done and apologize to me. But as she tried to do that, uh, he just walked past and said, I'm busy. <laughs> well, you know, we're sitting there. We're just the grandparents. We go, that was really funny, but it was really naughty. 
But I know what he was doing, right? He, did, he didn't want to deal with the confrontation. He wanted to pretend as if nothing happened, but he knew he had done wrong. He wanted to avoid Kathy's gaze. Well, in our Bible text, the actions of Adam and his wife, they feel strangely familiar to us, don't they? Chapter 3, it opens. We didn't deal with that this morning. We dealt with that last week. But uh, chapter 3 opens with us being introduced to this crafty serpent. He tempts the woman to take the fruit, which God forbade. Adam is standing right there, and, and he eats as well. And their eyes are opened. They feel shame, and they, they covered themselves from one another. Now here we are in verse 8. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, why were they hiding? Well, Adam has an explanation. But, but just think about this. This is not something that they ever felt the need to do before. Now, I realize that the details of the lives of the man and the woman are very sparse before they took the forbidden fruit and even after. The details of their lives are very sparse. But I think we can understand that, that at least from the text as it has unfolded to us to this point, the relationship between the man and God consisted of God showing him, God showing the man all that he had made, and then God inviting the man into the delight of observing and naming. And then God providing everything that they could have ever needed for their joy, the fruit trees, for example. And then in the midst of God's uh, instructions and, and sharing his delight with the man, he gives a single prohibition with a consequence for crossing the line. Crossing that line, taking the fruit, really, from Adam's perspective, would have offered him nothing at all to enhance their relationship with the Lord. To this point, there was unimpeded fellowship between man and God. Now, we're not even told how long it was between the command from God not to eat of the tree and their transgression. For all we know, it's, it's entirely possible that they walked past that tree day after day, looked at it to enjoy its beauty, and perhaps even touched it countless times before until they ate. Having been tempted by the serpent, Eve takes and gives the fruit to her husband. And now they're hiding they don't want to be in the presence of the Lord God. They don't want to be seen by him. So they hide among the trees. And now, instead of enjoying fellowship with God, they, they take plants that were meant for food and enjoyment, and then they make this makeshift clothing, something that God never intended. So they're hiding. Now, just think about that. Knowing God as they did... Where did they get the foolish idea that they could even hide from God? He made it all. He created everything, but we'll hide among the trees. How sin corrupts thinking and causes us to do foolish things. And anyway, the Lord confronts them. The Lord confronts them. Now, it's not like God needed information from them. He was confronting them so that they would understand what they had done. So that confrontation involves three questions for Adam and one for his wife. Uh, we know her name is Eve, of course, but we're not told that um, for the first time until verse 20. But he says to Adam, where are you? The Lord knows where he is. Where are you? Adam's response, I, I heard the sound of you. I was afraid because I was naked. 
Who told you that you were naked? Now, now bringing Adam to confront him with the fact that he has information that God never gave to him. He has some knowledge that God didn't, didn't, didn't provide for him. Who told you were naked? And, and how did you find out? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response, strangely, or maybe not so much when we think about how we respond when confronted. Well, the woman you gave to be with me, she, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. The Lord turns his attention to Eve. What is this that you have done? Well, the serpent deceived me. It's the serpent's fault. Now notice here the blame shifting. Adam blamed his wife. He blamed God for giving him the wife. Eve blames the serpent. None of them own it. Now, having succumbed to that first temptation, Adam and Eve are now, now compounding their sin by trying to give reasons, reasons for what they did. And that, that reasoning in their minds, they attempt to take away their own accountability and shift, in fact, shift blame back to God. And you, you've got to imagine, again, we, we can look over this circumstance and, and, and wonder why they would go down the road, but, but what did Adam think? Would, would the Lord say, well, you know, Adam, I do understand that your wife was deceived, so I guess you're really not to blame. And Eve, yeah, that serpent. I did make him a crafty one after all. So I guess we'll, we'll let this go. Of course not. If, if the Lord bent in any way to Adam's excuses, he would ultimately undermine his own character and become in that moment the liar. Impossible. Surely these are things that Adam and Eve understand. Surely these are things that we understand. But how often do we, we make excuses for our own sin? Well, God confronted them. And what God did was he caused them to consider their behavior in light of what he had already told them. You shall not eat of the tree. And they couldn't reason away their sin, and neither can we. So what is the right response to confrontation? as we take a lesson from them? What's the right response to God's truth about us that we encounter when we hear the voice of the Lord and we aren't going to hear it audibly, but we're going to hear it, read it in the Scripture? What's the right response? What should Adam and Eve have done? They should have agreed. Yes. Yes. Yes, we sinned. Agreement with God acknowledges that he knows what is true. Adam and Eve had already believed the lie. So, so all they needed to do was to humble themselves under the fact that God knows all and that God knows all about them. There is no hiding from God. Listen, how often do we, and I got thinking about this, Often when confronted by our own sin, even in the scriptures, you know, just reading along and we find ourselves rebuked by something. And well, you know, it's a pretty corrupt world around us and, you know, just kind of gave in or whatever. How often do we console ourselves with some kind of an excuse for sin, for slander? Well, well, she was dismissive of my concerns. An excuse for adultery, I've heard this. Well, my wife doesn't 
respect me. An excuse for theft. Well, well, I didn't have enough to pay the mortgage. Excuses for sexual perversions. I was born that way. It's your fault, God, for abusing drugs or alcohol. I, I just need to cope. Or for any other moral compromise that we're presented with every single day. Everyone else is doing it. That's just the way of the world. That's, hey, get with the times. No, when, when confronted by the word of God, the only response can be humility. Isaiah 66, 2 says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be people who are humble and contrite before the Lord. We need to be people who tremble at the word of God. That is what should set us apart from the rest of the word, world. As the word flaunts their disobedience to the word of God, celebrates their disobedience to the word, we are called to be people who, when confronted by the word, tremble at it. So the word of God confronts us all, of course, and just like Adam and Eve, we're sinners. We've got to give an account. So what will you say? What will you say before God who knows all? What will you say before God who sees all, who knows your heart? What will you say? Will you negotiate? If that's your plan, let me tell you, God will not be moved by anything at all. You and I, we must bend to him. We must submit to him. We must confess our sins and turn away. And what will help us to do that? And that's really my next point. The next heading is the curse. Now, there are basic and inviolable laws of nature that we all have to abide by. We get this. Most of us have studied Newton's three laws of motion. Uh, the law of gravity is a basic principle we live by. And if we violate it, we get it. We may die by it. Right? What goes up must come down, we understand. When you throw a ball, it has to land somewhere. If you step off the roof of your house onto nothing at all, you will hit the ground. You can't violate that law. These basic laws are built into how God created the world. And God also has moral laws. He told Adam that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden as food for him. And he told him transgressing that law meant death. It was an inviolable moral principle which illustrates that the general moral reality is that disobedience to God leads to death. Now when the man took the fruit, he died. Well, what is death? If he died, how do we understand death rightly? Death is separation. So physical death is the separation of the body from the spirit. So when someone dies and they say, whether he's a believer or not, he's in a better place, they're saying, there's the body, his personhood is somewhere else. No, that's true. Whether he's in a better place or not really depends on their relationship with the Lord God. But be that as it may, death is a separation of the body from the spirit. 
So when we die, we do not cease to be. We cease to be enfleshed, right? And that's going to eventually happen to Adam. Eating the fruit established in his body an expiration date, if you will. Eating the fruit meant he would die. But when the Lord said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, he did die. That day, Adam and his wife died spiritually. In their personhood, they were separated from the life of God. And that spiritual death carried with it a number of consequences. And these can be summed up under the word curse. So what is a curse? I think we get it, but it's a pronouncement of doom, isn't it? So as opposed to a blessing. A blessing is a pronouncement of good, of thriving, of, of well-being. When you bless someone, you say, oh, hope all goes well, have a great day. That's a blessing. God be with you. We want good, right? A curse is the opposite. Doom is futility. It's frustration. It's corruption and ultimately death. And when you curse someone, you are pronouncing doom upon them. So after questioning Adam and his wife, and as a consequence for their own sin, and because the serpent himself became a tool of Satan, the Lord then says to the serpent, because you have done this, that is to say, because you have tempted Eve, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now this serpent, this snake, was doomed to eat the dust of the earth as his food. He went from being considered more crafty, chapter 3, verse 1, more crafty than any other beast of the field. He went from there to becoming the most despised among the beasts. Now, part of that curse was this enmity, this hostility between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. And we're going to get to that later. Now, then the Lord God turns his attention to Adam. And it's important to understand here, brothers and sisters, it's important to understand that God did not curse the man and the woman. He didn't pronounce doom upon them. He still wanted their good. In spite of their sin, he still wanted their good. He still wanted their thriving. Even in the curse on the rest of the creation, the Lord still had it in mind to provide for man. He still wanted man to fulfill his purpose, to fill the land and rule over it. That's why even after the confrontation, verse 20, the man calls his wife Eve, understanding their role because she would be the mother of all living. So God did not curse the man and the woman. He does not curse his image bearers. He does not have doom for us, his image bearers. But what I think in, is in view here, and I think this is, this is really important, is discipline. Discipline. They have sinned. He's not dooming them. He's disciplining them. So Eve is told, look, there's going to be toil. There's going to be pain in childbirth, pain in delivery, discomfort in pregnancy, and I think it includes everything else, difficulty in conception. The thing that we long for, the thing that we understand is, is part of our reason to be on the earth. So many want to participate and so many often feel thwarted. Pain, toil, and childbirth. Now, uh, you know, we all get this in spite of the marvels of medicine. There is pain in childbirth. Now, I don't personally know this pain and uh, I think every woman would say, a man, you will never know this pain. And some deep yes, I'll never know the pain. I'd never, I'm not going to go there, but I've seen it 
in the eyes of my wife. I didn't know her eyes could actually come out of her head. I've seen that. It's pain. But additionally, Eve is told not only that childbirth would be difficult, and the whole process of fulfilling her, her mandate to be fruitful and multiply, that that would be in toil. But she was also told that there would be broken fellowship between her and her husband. It says there, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, desire for, that can be interpreted certainly in a positive way, that, that she would desire her husband in an intimate way. But when you take that with the next clause, the sense of desire is, I think, to have mastery over her husband. Because it says, but, but, he shall rule over you. You see, the consequence of Eve's sin is that her desire would be corrupted. Her desire for her husband would ultimately be corrupted by her sin. And she would find herself in conflict with her husband. And he would dominate her with a heavy hand. And I think this is the fact for the reason for the Apostle Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 5. Considering the, the plight of humanity and the ways in which marriages fall apart, they need a picture of something more glorious and grand. Because the, the wife and husband are in conflict, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he says to wives, Submit your, to your husbands as to the Lord, putting a grand picture on display as an ideal to be pursued. Well, Adam's discipline, so he's going to experience his wife in conflict, so Adam gets an additional discipline. It's that the ground is cursed. Not Adam, but the ground. So instead of rest and enjoyment in the land while they fill the earth, he must work hard. He must toil to fill the earth. And the, Adam, and, and the, and the earth itself will resist Adam's efforts. Now, we don't know. We don't know what it's like to live without a curse on creation. We've never experienced that. We, we feel it every day, right? The, the curse on creation is the reason for blight on crops. It's herds that get diseased. It's drought. It's hurricanes. It's hail. It's floods. It's any natural disaster. It's, it's creation under the curse. And further, man's sin, our collective sin, corrupts everything we do. It leads to poor governance. It leads to social, leads to social unrest, injustice, law-breaking. It leads to poor management. It leads to bankruptcies. It leads to abusive work environments. The curse on creation and man's sin is the reason for disease. It's the reason for this pandemic that we're in. We have caused it by our sin. No, you didn't release the virus. But we're all participants in it. Before the fall, the earth would, would delight to yield its produce with no effort on the part of man. Now what happens is creation itself fights against our efforts to subdue it. So, so we find a vaccine for one disease. The cursed creation throws another at us. It's this constant tug of war, isn't it? We found effective treatments and vaccines for measles and smallpox, then HIV and Ebola. Then there's vaccines and treatments for that. Then COVID happens. And don't think COVID is the end. Until Jesus returns, the creation is going to continue to war against our efforts to tame it. Jesus said, 
And I think he had a whole host of things in mind when he said this. In this world, you will have tribulation. You probably think this song is about you. Don't you, don't you, don't you. Well, it is. And it's about me too. We're the cause of tribulation in this world. So the relationship between the man and the woman became adversarial and the relationship between man and creation became adversarial. It just simply resists our dominion. Now, why did God curse the ground? What's this grand purpose? I'll take you to Romans 8. Listen, listen to this. And, and it makes sense. Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the creation waits. It's as if being personified. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of of the children of God. You see what creation wants? In a sense, being personified? Creation is cursed in the hope that the curse on creation will, will bring about the ultimate freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22 of uh, Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We live this. Creation groans. It fights against us. And we groan along with it. And it's as if, as if God did this so that it would move us to be revealed as the sons of God. There is a day coming when the creation will be released from the bondage that we have brought upon it when the sons of God are revealed as completed in God's sight. So God subjected creation to the curse for our good. That's why I take it as discipline. See, God has not taken our responsibility away to, to fill the land and rule over it. We still bear the image of God. So there is toil in childbirth and there is toil in work but that's God's discipline and it's God's reminder so every time work is hard take it as a reminder that this is tainted because of our rebellion and it should drive us to seek God to find in him mercy and grace to find in him alone the hope to be delivered to find in God what it takes to bring back the harmony that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. So until then, until the appearance of Christ, until we're fully sanctified, creation groans, longing to be fully and finally set free when Christ returns. So when work is hard, keep that in view. When the next pandemic comes, oh, I pray that there is not one. Keep that in view. It's God's discipline. It's a reminder. This isn't your hope here. Look to me. Look to me. Well, finally, last word here is covenant. Covenant. 
Uh, some of you live in neighborhoods that require you to abide by, by certain stipulations if you live there. I don't live in one of those neighborhoods. People can do what they want, seemingly. But if you live in one of those neighborhoods, what, they control what color you can paint, the house, the kind of, you know, the kind of fence that you can put up. Um, if you live in one of those kinds of neighborhoods, you can't park your boat or RV in the driveway all year long. Um, and if you should happen to you know, put your 69 El Camino up on blocks in your driveways, you repair the rusted fenders and change the engine, that's not going to fly. So that agreement, we get it's called a covenant. And what that does is effectively it's a promise between parties. So the way I see it, God is relating to his people. And we, if we, as we unfold the scriptures, God relates to his people on the basis of covenants. God sets forth both the terms and amazingly, he takes responsibility for those terms being met. Now, we're going to explore some of these later. God's covenant with Noah, that's going to come up. His covenant with Abraham, we'll see that. Beyond the, the pages of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, God made a covenant with King David, and out of which we have uh, the promise of a Messiah. And of course, Jesus himself sealed the covenant with God's people through his own blood at the cross. Covenants, God's promises, God's agreements. So here, here as we look in the beginning of Genesis, we see the beginnings of how God covenants with his people, how his promises would serve to guide how his own people would live in relationship with him. God puts these covenants out as a guide as an, so that we understand our relationship with him. And I want you to see in our text here three aspects of God's covenant there's the offspring, the sacrifice, and the terms of the covenant. The offspring of the covenant, the sacrifice of the covenant, and the terms. And all of these are, are oblique. I get that. But as Genesis and, and really the rest of the Pentateuch unfolds, they come into clearer view. First of all, verse 15 reveals, and I said I'd get to this, the offspring of the covenant. I'll read that again. It says this, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the servant, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, the offspring, and you, the offspring, shall bruise his heel. Offspring of the serpent, offspring of the woman. So the curse on the serpent would be enmity, hostility between the offspring of the woman and the serpent and her offspring. Now, that would be certainly true in a physical sense. I know, and maybe you, I have some agreement here among you. I'm, I'm not a fan of snakes. I'm not a fan even of harmless garden snakes. And I know, I know Kathy is not a fan of any kind of snake because if they show up, she doesn't even want to look at it. If I show her a picture of a snake, she's terrified. Now, even more terrifying than garden snakes are, are and they're unpredictable, right? You've got uh, rattlers and cobras, copperheads, vipers, and black mamas. I just looked these up to see. These are all dangerous, dangerous, deadly snakes. They strike an unsuspecting victim, often, often causing death. So there's enmity between the offspring of the woman, all of humanity, and snakes. But there's a spiritual curse. The serpent himself will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. So the offspring of the woman will be wounded on his heel by the serpent. Not a fatal blow, but there will be a wound. But the offspring of the woman, 
And now what we have is a singular offspring. He will bruise the head, crush the head of the serpent, dealing what is a fatal blow. And this is good news. Because the serpent will one day be defeated. Yet the offspring of the woman will bear in his body the consequence of Adam's sin. So who is that offspring? And I think you know. It's Christ himself. So right here in the midst of a curse on a serpent is what has been called the proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel. The promise of this offspring, God's promise. His covenant to restore man to the place of thriving and fellowship with him is found in a singular man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's why I call this a blessed curse. It's the, the silver lining in the ugly storm cloud. A curse on the serpent. The curse then falling upon Christ, who is the offspring. That blessing comes to all who believe in him. So what is a curse through the serpent to the offspring becomes a blessing, a wonderful, glorious blessing to us. Now we see how this unfolds through the rest of the story of Scripture. The, spirit, the, the, the serpent and his spiritual offspring, they stirred up the crowds, you'll recall, in the Gospels. They stirred up the crowds to have Jesus crucified. The, the, the serpent's offspring were effectively the religious leaders at the time. Remember how Jesus addressed them? Think offspring. He said to these religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, back to the garden, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a lie, liar and the father of lies. He's saying to these religious leaders, yeah, that's your dad. And so there, as unfolded in the Gospels, there the serpent dealt a wound to Jesus' heel. And Jesus was cursed when he hung on the cross. But when Jesus emerged from the tomb on the third day, he dealt what would eventually become a fatal blow. And he crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. So the very deception that the serpent inflicted upon Adam and Eve came full circle and back to become his ultimate demise. The offspring of the covenant. Secondly, I want you to see the sacrifice of the covenant. And this again is oblique. Foreshadowing how, how God would ultimately restore the man to his place of fellowship. What happened? Verse 21. The Lord God. So this is, they're hiding and they've got these uh, fig leaves sewn together to make coverings for their, their differences between the husband and wife. So what did the Lord do? The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So Adam and Eve's shame needed to be covered. And in order for that to happen, an animal was killed. An animal was sacrificed for them. So you get the picture here? Another had to die so that Adam and Eve could live without the shame of their own sin. Another had to die. Not them. So the animal effectively bore their shame. We don't know what kind of animal it was. It doesn't matter. 
The animal effectively bore their shame by giving up its life. And what's critical to understand here is that the Lord, the Lord provided the animal. Adam didn't provide the sacrifice. God did. And that animal sacrifice that happened there in the garden, that animal sacrifice would be a, a placeholder effectively for future sacrifices and ultimately a single sacrifice. And that would be progressively revealed as God provided for Finally, the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant. So there's a sacrifice of the covenant, the offspring of the covenant, the sacrifice of the covenant, now the terms. The terms of the covenant. I want you to look at verse 24 again. Somewhat oblique. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's all that about? Well, there's much more than I can deal with this morning in this. But what I just want to point out, that the tree of life itself and the cherubim are significant. The man driven away, separated from that, is also significant. So the tree of life here, representing the life of God, as guarded by the cherubim, indicated that going forward and forever, access to God would be on very precise terms. Now, we have to fast forward to the tabernacle to see this. When God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle as he commanded, you can find this in Exodus, with the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place at the very center of that, that was also referred to, that Ark was referred to as the mercy seat. So the the only way to life is by God showing mercy. I think we can understand that now in light of Adam's sin. That mercy seat was symbolically guarded by cherubim in the Holy of Holies, like the tree of life. So I'll just give you the picture in Exodus 37. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings with their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. I know, it's oblique, but it's signaling something that God is going to do. So the man had been driven away, but he could still find mercy. And mercy, in light of the tabernacle, would be dispensed at a specific time, in a specific place, on a specific day of the year, the Day of Atonement. So it wasn't just any sacrifice. It wasn't just any time. It was not on the whims of the worshiper, but it was by God's very precise terms. And I just encourage you to look at Leviticus 16 for your homework. You see there described the precision with which that sacrifice would be offered. God prescribing it. And the Israelites were to keep that prescription and they received mercy. Why? Because it ultimately pointed to a Future sacrifice, a sacrifice on God's terms, provided by God, brought by a specific person at just the right time, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come, God 
sent. The fullness of time. At just the right time, in just the right way, God prescribed the sacrifice. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. He offered himself, removing effectively the placeholder of the animal sacrifice, setting aside the type, becoming in himself the fulfillment. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. God provided the sacrifice at just the right time. God prescribed when it would happen. And Jesus ultimately fulfilled that. Now we can see this tendency in the human person, right? Throughout history, this tendency, this understanding, there's got to be a sacrifice. Pagans have felt compelled to offer to their false deities sacrifices, right? An animal or one of their own children, horrifyingly, or one designated representative from the community. Now we don't do that. But sometimes don't we behave like pagans, when we bring our offerings to the Lord, thinking that our sacrifice, some, some act of generosity on our part, our donations to, to charity, the list of our good deeds, that somehow God will go, oh, thank you. Now, now don't get me wrong. God is not a genuine heart of gratitude expressed to giving to the Lord. It's not something that God despises. But if you think that you're buying his favor by the thing that you present to him, it's futility. God said, I will sacrifice an animal. I will cover your sin, your shame with their skins. God provided the means through the tabernacle and the wilderness for, for the Israelites to find mercy. And that ultimately pointed to God providing in his own son the once-for-all sacrifice at just the right time to be the once-for-all, never-needed-again sacrifice for sin. Any, any other basis for seeking mercy from God apart from Christ is absolute futility. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men. So, in Christ, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Brothers and sisters, that is our good news, isn't it? And that was, that was predicted and began to be unfolded as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God. So if you have believed in him, if you've put your faith in Jesus as the once-for-all sacrifice, you have been made righteous. So let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? Now all of us have followed the footsteps of Adam. There is no excuse for our sin. The word of God confronts us in our rebellion and asks us, where are you? What have you done? 
And because of Adam's sin and ours, there is toil and there's tribulation. Every moment we experience the fact that creation has been cursed, but this is not without purpose. We're meant to find our hope, not in the things of this world, not in the hope of somehow conquering our physical and social environment, but in the very things that God has promised. And what God has promised, what he has covenanted since the very beginning has been presented to us in the cursing of the blessed. In his body, Jesus bore the curse that should have been ours. God didn't curse us. He cursed the earth for us. But he cursed his son for us as well. And because Jesus was perfect, he was able to bear that curse that should have been ours and he will one day make all things new. In that day, when he takes us to his glorious land to dwell with him forever. I pray, I pray that your hope is in Christ today. And as the word of God confronts you with your sin and rebellion, that you don't make excuses or hide, but you humble yourself. And then as you experience the toil of this world, you're reminded God is disciplining you. He's teaching you to look to him because he's made a promise and he's fulfilled it in Christ. I trust your hope is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to reveal to us and to unfold for us this glorious story of how we could return to you, that we could find mercy. We know that's through Jesus. And I pray for, if there's anyone in this room this morning who's still hiding among the trees, excusing sin, Lord, that by your spirit, you would bring conviction and cause that one right now, right now in this moment, to turn to Jesus in faith. The one who is the very fulfillment of your promise. Lord, as uh, we leave this place and go out into this world, remind us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And while we experience tribulation in the world, we also know that Jesus said he overcame it. So keep us as your people with our eyes fixed on him. And we pray that as a result of that, Christ would be glorified. It's in his name we pray.